This is the final week of the, the Grace Way message series. We've been looking at expressions of grace in, in the life and the, the ministry of Jesus. Because in every encounter that Jesus had with another person, in every story that he told about what life in the kingdom was really like, in everything that he taught, everything that he said, everything that he did and that he was, Jesus showed us what grace is about. He exemplified, he demonstrated for us the grace of God. It's the favor of God given to us as a gift. It's the the love and acceptance and forgiveness of God that we cannot earn, that we cannot perform well enough to deserve, that He gives us unconditionally. That was the grace that it was said was in Jesus and was on Him. It was the fuel that drove His life and His ministry and His teaching and His mission of sacrifice for us. And nothing... Well, from the very beginning, we've said nothing is more difficult for us to get our heads around than that. It's shocking. It's offensive. This idea that there's nothing we can do to earn God's grace, that everything has already been done. You know, if there's anything we hate more than being told what to do, it's being told that there's nothing we can do, that we can't earn anything, that we're helpless and weak and needy, but it's true. It's true. We need grace. We need grace every moment of every day of our lives on this earth. Grace is not just for our salvation. It is essential to our Christian life. Grace is not just what gets us in. It's what keeps us in. We have to have it. And the only hope we have of getting it is if God gives it to us. Not because of who we are. And not because of what we've done, but in spite of who we are and in spite of what we've done. Nowhere do we see this more clearly than in an encounter between Jesus and Peter that took place near the end of Jesus' life on this earth. That's what we're going to look at this morning. Go ahead and turn over to Matthew chapter 26. If we've been around church for a while, it's easy for us to think that we know Peter pretty well, right? We know that he was rash and uh, reactionary. We know that uh, he was headstrong. We know that he would uh, quite frequently talk a good game but fail to deliver. We know that his life was subject to these mountaintop highs and the depths of the lowest valleys. Sometimes in the same instant. And we know that Jesus very often had to to gently and not so gently get Peter back on track, get him back in line. But the more we look at his life, the more we know about Peter, the more it becomes obvious that we are just like him. We are just like Him. His relationship with Jesus, with its ups and its downs, its its highs and its lows, its ins and its outs, it reflects us and reflects our relationship with Jesus. And can I just be honest and tell you, I don't like that. I don't like it one bit. I want to be Paul. Don't you? I, I, I want to be... I want to 
think of myself as this educated, intelligent, articulate, passionate defender of the faith. But the reality for me and for practically every follower of Jesus that I know is that I am brash, impulsive, impatient Peter. I say one thing and do another. I eagerly start out towards Jesus when He bids me come to Him. And then I look around at the wind and the waves and I get scared. And I start to sink. I often think my plan is better than Jesus' plan. Because honestly, and I'm not alone, we are all Simon Peter. So I want us to look at this incident in Matthew 26. It is the last night that Jesus spent with his disciples on this earth. And they have just celebrated the Jewish Passover together. Uh, They have celebrated what we know, what we call the Last Supper together. And immediately following this is the incident that we want to to look at. It uh, it picks up for us in Matthew 26, uh, verse 30. Then they sang a hymn and went out to the Mount of Olives. On the way, Jesus told them, Tonight, all of you will desert me. For the Scriptures say, God will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have been raised from the dead, I will go ahead of you to Galilee and meet you there. Peter declared, even if everyone else deserts you, I will never desert you. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, Peter. This very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny three times that you even know me. No, Peter insisted. Even if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. And all the disciples vowed the same. Now turn to a little further down in that chapter to verse 69. Matthew 26, 69. Meanwhile, Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard. A servant girl came over and said to him, You were one of those with Jesus, the Galilean. But Peter denied it in front of everyone. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Later, out by the gate, another servant girl noticed him and said to those standing around, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. Again, Peter denied it, this time with an oath. I don't even know the man, he said. A little later, some of the other bystanders came over to Peter and said, You must be one of them. We can tell by your Galilean accent. Peter swore. A curse on me if I'm lying. I don't know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. Suddenly Jesus' words flashed through Peter's mind. Before the rooster crows, you will deny three times that you even know me. And he went away, weeping bitterly. This slice of Jesus' life. And this aspect of his relationship with Peter is such a great place for us to to learn something transformational about grace. Because this dramatic interaction between Jesus and Peter is, is a fitting place to see two truths that I think can change everything for us. And I'm going to give you both. I'm going to give you your whole outline to fill in right now. Because here's what these two truths are. Our love for God always fails. And God's love for us never fails. 
Understanding that. Getting it can change the way that we feel and think and behave. It can change the way we relate to God, to other people, to our Christian life. And so we want to dig in and take a closer look at these truths this morning. First, let's, let's take a look at this. The sobering reality that our love for God always fails. Well, thanks a lot, Pastor Scott. That's a fun word. Happy Palm Sunday to you. But it's true. Peter never has any problem speaking up, speaking out about his devotion to Jesus. He loves Jesus. And why shouldn't he? I mean, Peter was this, he was a day laborer. That's basically what he was. He was a, a lowly fisherman who went to work every day catching fish for a living. And if he didn't work, guess what? He didn't get paid, didn't eat. His family did without wasn't very high up on the social scale. Well, he wasn't influential or prominent. And then Jesus comes to him. And Jesus calls him, commissions Peter to follow him. And Peter puts his fishing gear away and goes with Jesus. He learns to be a, a fisher for people. And for the next three years, Jesus invests his life in Peter's life and in the, the lives of the other disciples. And he teaches them, and he, he mentors them, and he prepares them to change the world in ways they cannot even fathom when they start out on that journey. And they live together, and they travel together, they eat together, and Jesus loves them dearly, deeply, truly loves them. They are his friends. And Peter feels the same way about Jesus. And he, he never has a problem expressing that affection. He wants everybody to know how he felt about Jesus. He wants everybody to know how committed he was to Jesus. You see, Peter just knew that his devotion to Jesus could see him through anything he might face. Peter is convinced that the strength of his commitment to Jesus is going to get him to the finish line. He just knows that there is nothing that can put a dent in his love for and his commitment to Jesus. I'm telling you, Peter has the hat and the t-shirt and the bumper sticker and the Bible cover and the bracelet and the poster and the coffee mug. So when Jesus says... In a little while, you will all desert me. Peter doesn't hesitate a second before he says, Oh, no, no, no! These other people might desert you, but I won't. I am totally committed to you. I, I love you just as much as you love me, Jesus. And in fact, if I have to, I will die before I'll ever desert you. Now, let me tell you what Peter's doing here. He's doing the same thing we all do. He is putting his confidence, his faith in his love for Jesus, in his devotion and his commitment to Jesus. He thinks, Peter thinks, that the source of his strength, that what sustains him is the power of his love for Jesus. And doesn't that sound like the way it ought to be? 
I mean, we are so thankful, so grateful for our salvation. And now we want to spend the rest of our lives doing our best to show the world how strong and sure our love and devotion to God really is. And let me tell you where that takes us. It takes us to the exact same place that Peter went. We get critical and judgmental of other people. Isn't that what Peter did? Jesus, they may all desert you. They probably will, Jesus. But not me. Isn't isn't Peter a great friend? I mean, he's traveled with these guys for three years, traveled with them, eaten with them, slept in the same place. They're all going to desert you, Jesus, but not me. I'm committed to you. They, They are cold and indifferent. They're weak, but not me. I have known a lot of church people who get frustrated with other church people because they've concluded that their love for God is stronger and deeper than the other person's love for God. If they loved God the way I love God, they'd be committed to Him the way I'm committed to Him. They would wear what I wear and watch what I watch and listen to what I listen to and read what I read. They'd boycott the same things I boycott. They'd stand against Disney World and Starbucks and SpongeBob and Halloween and the list goes on and on. When we think that our love for Jesus is the fuel that drives our relationship with Him, and we think that's okay, we think that's normal, we think that's the way this thing is supposed to work, we're setting ourselves up for failure. Jesus tells Peter, before the sun comes up tomorrow, you're going to be the biggest failure. These other followers of mine, they're going to run off. But you will, with your mouth, deny you ever knew me. And Peter says, no, Jesus, you got the wrong guy. I will never do that. And in fact, I can't believe that you have so totally underestimated my commitment to you. How much I love you. Jesus, I will die before I ever desert you. And listen, we are all susceptible to that same kind of thinking to thinking that our commitment to God is what matters the most in our relationship to Him. That it is our love for Him that gets us where we want to be and where we need to be instead of His love for us. And that leads us right to where Peter is. Right where a lot of us live, evaluating other people's spiritual health, spiritual standing, their relationship with God through us and our love, and our commitment to Him. It's crazy. It's crazy. We don't even realize that when we say, you need to be like me, you need to be as committed as I am, as sacrificial as I am, as devout and holy as I am, that when we think that way, what we're doing is replacing Jesus and His sacrifice as the center and foundation of the Christian life, and we're putting ourselves there. Now it's all about us. And what we do, we make the Christian life about us. 
and all the time. There's this avalanche of Christian books and DVDs and Bible studies and Sunday school curriculum flooding the market, all with one thing in common. They're all about us and what we need to do and how strong we need to make our love for God. But listen carefully. If we're banking on us, if we're banking on our commitment to Jesus and our love for God to get us across the finish line, we are making a tragic mistake and we will travel a miserable road in our Christian walk and we will never enjoy our salvation for as long as we live in this world. This is going to set somebody free today. The Christian life is Christ's life. Not ours, not mine, not yours. It's about Him. It's not about us and our commitment or our obedience or our love or our ability to figure out what's right and get it done. It's all about Jesus. It's about His love for us, His commitment to us, His obedience on our behalf, His sacrifice for us. Jesus is the hero of this story. It's all about Him. But we know what happens. Peter's love and commitment to Jesus that he has banked on, depended on, fails him miserably. Miserably. He goes, he goes from saying, I will never desert you. I love you too much. My commitment is too strong. I will die before I desert you. To denying. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know the man. I've never even heard of him. And do you get that he makes a couple of these vehement denials to like a 12 or 13-year-old girl? Uh, aren't you like one of those followers of Jesus? I don't know him. What a swing in a matter of hours from I'll die for you to I don't know him. And then the rooster crows. Matthew says Peter went out and wept bitterly. He sobs because he knows he has blown it. We always do. We always know that, don't we? He knows that his commitment and his love, his devotion, that he was depending on so much, that he was placing so much of his weight on, has not prevented him from bottoming out. Peter's life and his relationship with Jesus is a preview, a snapshot, if you will, of our lives and our relationship with Jesus. His love for Jesus, which he was so confident about proves to be quite shallow. His love for Jesus turns out to be much weaker than he thought it was, and that's you and me. Here's what we've got to figure out. Is the strength and security of our relationship to Jesus based on our commitment to Him or His commitment to us? 
I'm going to tell you that our answer will determine the entire direction of our Christian life because we either think the Christian life is about us and what we do for God or we know our Christian life is all about God and what He did for us through Jesus Christ. When push comes to shove in my life, do I really want to depend on? Do I really want to be standing all the way out on the limb of my love for Jesus to get me through? Or do I want to put my full weight in total dependence on His love for me? A few weeks ago, I said that that grace has to become the filter. The filter through which we study and understand every part of the Bible. Well, here's another little piece of that puzzle. Another thing that, that will help us as we read the Scripture with our grace glasses on. This will help us understand the entire Bible. The focus of the Bible is not us and our love for God. The focus of the Bible is God and His love for us through Jesus Christ. We tend to treat the Bible like it's some kind of a field manual. Like it's a set of instructions that came with with something we've got to put together. Some of you are are aware of the, the legendary stories of my encounter with things that are easy to assemble. How many days it takes. Weeks. How close, how close to the brink of divorce my wife and I get. Because I can't put this together stays on the dining room floor for months because I can't find part HH and JJ. I didn't even know there were such letters. I I didn't learn my AABBCCs. We we act like the Bible is a set of instructions and now we've got to put all the the parts together. We we treat it like a, a spiritual fortune cookie. But the Bible is more than just directions for what we have to do to have a good life. The Bible is God revealing Himself to us. God revealing His plan and His intention to clean us up and fit us for heaven and make us one of His own. I love what Tim Keller says. I'm paraphrasing here. The Bible is not fundamentally about us. It's fundamentally about Jesus. And the purpose of the Bible is to consistently, constantly show us how God's grace breaks into our lives and saves us from the sin and brokenness that we could never overcome otherwise. And if you're sitting there thinking, okay, so what? Or what does this mean to me? Or did I turn the stove off? Here's what this means to us. If we believe that our love for God and our commitment to Him is the fuel that drives our Christian life, we will, like Peter, fail miserably, totally, completely. Because our love for God always fails. Always. It's not about us. It's not about us. There's got to be something greater and stronger and more substantial than the the depth of my love and the strength of my commitment. There's got to be. Thank God there is. 
And that leads us to the next truth. God's love for us never fails. Let's jump back for a second in Matthew 26 to verse 30. Um, we kind of just kind of skipped right over that verse, starting out. But it says, Then they sang a hymn and went out to the Mount of Olives. Now, because we know that Jesus and his followers have just celebrated the Passover, because we know that that, that meal, that uh, last supper meal that they've just shared together was the Passover meal, we know what they sang. Because traditionally at the end of the Passover meal, the great halal was sang, was sung. And, and halal means praise. It's where we, it's the word that gives us our word hallelujah, which means praise God. And the great halal is found in Psalm 136. Now, we're not going to read that now, but you, you're going to want to look at that later. You're going to want to read that later today or, or when you get time. Because in Psalm 136, there are 26 verses. And 26 times, once in every verse, it says, His, meaning God's, faithful love endures forever. It's repeated over and over and over and over. Now, isn't it interesting that they sing that song? Repeating over and over, His faithful love endures forever. 26 times. And the next thing that happens is Jesus tells them, you're all going to desert me. And Peter, you're going to deny me. It's no coincidence. It's not an accident that those things are, are juxtaposed. God is showing them that no matter what they do or do not do, the faithful love of our God endures forever. His love stands the test. His love carries the day forever. We'll turn over to John chapter 21. It's near the end, right before you get to Acts. At this point, Jesus has been crucified. He's been buried for three days, and he has been raised from the dead. And this part of the story now takes place in that in-between time, from the time Jesus was raised from the dead until he goes back to be with the Father. And some of his followers, including Peter, they're out fishing. And Jesus is on the shore cooking breakfast. And we pick up in John 21, verse 15. After breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter replied. You know I love you. Then feed my lambs, Jesus told him. Jesus repeated the question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, Peter said, you know I love you. Then take care of my sheep, Jesus said. A third time he asked, Simon, he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt that Jesus asked the question a third time. He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, then feed my sheep. Don't you know this conversation was heart-wrenching for Peter? It had to be. And, and, and really, it kind of seems like, I mean, if we don't know better, it kind of seems like Jesus is throwing Peter's failure in his face. That he's reminding him of how weak his love for Jesus was in the heat of a difficult moment. 
Can you imagine the turmoil that Peter's been going through since the night the rooster crowed? Laying awake in his bed at night, unable to sleep. Just over and over in his mind, he he thinks about his failure. He thinks about the, the weakness of his love for Jesus. Man, after everything he did for me, I still messed up. After all that he gave me and taught me and shared with me, after the way that he loved me, I still blew it. My love for Jesus failed. He feels dirty and guilty and stupid and ashamed and sad about what a disappointment he must surely be to his Savior. But Jesus, full of grace, shows Peter and shows us that while our love for God always fails, His love for us never does. Because after the denial, Jesus restores Peter and returns him to the ministry. After the denial. It's so important for us to see this. It's so important for us to see the love of Jesus for Peter in spite of his failure, in spite of the denials, in spite of the flimsiness of his love for Jesus. In his grace, Jesus says to this broken and ashamed man, not only do I love you and forgive you and accept you, I want you now to go and minister to other people in my name. Now you have some insight. You have some empathy that you lacked before. Jesus recommissions Peter three times, once for each denial. And here's what that means to you and me. It means that Jesus' love for us and his commitment to us doesn't just match our failures. It completely overpowers them. It completely overpowers him. Jesus' love is so great that he will work through us even after we have failed him. That's why grace blows our mind. That's why it doesn't seem to, to fit the world we know. In this world, if we fail, we're finished. If we blow it, we blow up. And sure, there are some people who will say that they give us another chance or two. But Deep down in our hearts, we suspect that they're no different than we are, which means they will never forget that in their mind we will always wear the label failure, loser, undependable, screw up. God does two amazing things here. He totally obliterates the guilt and the shame and the blame of Peter's past while at the same time using his past as part of his plan and his purpose for Peter's future. That's where our hope and our joy comes from. Not from our ability to do right or to do good, but from God's willingness to love us and forgive us and restore us over and over and over again. That's what Jesus is doing for Peter when he says, feed my sheep. Peter, here's what qualifies you for service, for the Christian life. It's not your love for me. It's my love for you. Peter, your commitment to me has already crumbled. 
and it will crumble again. So instead, let's build this relationship on my commitment to you. Folks, as plainly as I can state it, here's the whole thing. Everything. Everything. Everything about our our lives and our church and our salvation and our Christian walk and our relationship with God is based on His infinite, incomprehensible, unconditional love for us, not our love for Him. And don't you know that truth gave Peter his first opportunity in days to exhale. The first relief he's gotten for days he gets now as he begins to grasp that his relationship with God is based on Jesus' commitment to him, not on his commitment to Jesus. Our Christian life, our walk depends on understanding that. And here's why. It would be nice to think that Peter got this. That, that this incident, that this grace that was extended to him, that the, the beautiful, unconditional love of God took root so deeply in his heart that he never again struggled with thinking, if it's to be, it's up to me. That he never again wrestled with thinking that the strength of his love and his commitment to Jesus was what made the relationship work. Man, it would be great if that was the effect that it had. But you know what? Just a few years later, Peter fails again. In the book of Galatians, Paul says he has to get in Peter's face because Peter was refusing to have anything to do with the Gentile believers because he was afraid of what the Judaizers might think. Now, I want to unpack that a little, not too much. I'm going to preach through Galatians this summer, so you come back then and we'll talk more about that. But The Gentiles were people who had not been Jews, who were not Jewish, but who came to faith in Christ. The Judaizers were people who said, whoa, whoa, before you can become a Christian, you got to become a Jew. And in fact, even after you become a Christian, you got to keep Jewish law and follow Jewish rules and, and Jewish observances and Jewish rituals. If you don't, you're not a real Christian. And so they showed up in town. Peter, who'd been hanging out with and eating with and ministering among the Gentiles, sees them show up, and he gets scared. And he, he cuts off the Gentiles. He won't have anything to do with them, and he goes to hang out with the Jewish believers. And what he has done is he has basically denied Jesus again. He's denied Jesus' sacrifice on the cross and, and the torn veil and the new covenant. And Paul has to call him on it. And folks, this is after the beach. This is after he's been restored, after he's been recommissioned. And you know what? That ought to encourage us. Because just like Peter, we will continue to mess up and we will continue to fail because our love and our commitment to Jesus will never measure up to his love and his commitment to us. We will, for the rest of our lives, if we're going to walk the grace way, we will have to constantly shift our weight and our dependence away from our love and commitment to Jesus and place it on His love and His commitment to us. It'll be a daily battle, moment by moment. Because we never outgrow the need for God's grace. Never, ever. 
It is the gospel. Grace is the gospel. And it is essential to every message that is preached, every Bible study that's led, every ministry that's carried out. It all has to be rooted in, infused with, filled with, and overflowing with grace. So be careful. Because there is an awful lot of ungrace out there. There's a lot of anti-grace out there. Tons of it. In Christian bookstores, and Christian TV, oh my goodness. In pulpits all over the place. So how can we tell the difference? How can we tell if a, if a sermon or a book or a Bible study or a, a blog post or a Facebook link or a tweet is a grace message or an ungrace message? Well, here's how. If the focus is on what we must do instead of on what Jesus has done, it's not a grace message. That's simple enough. If the focus is on me and what I have to do instead of on Jesus and what He has done, what He has accomplished, it's not a grace message. If we come away from a message or a book or a Bible study going, wow, I've got so much to do. That, that message just added to my list of things that I'm deficient in and, and need to work on and need to shore up. I mean, I just got about 10 things added to my to-do list if I'm going to have my best life now. Then it's not a grace message. See, no matter what else happens, if I can help us leave here saying, thank you, Jesus, for all that you have done, no matter what else happens, I'll feel like I've succeeded. But if we leave here going, i got to get busy, if God is going to love me and accept me and approve of me, then I have failed you as a pastor and as a teacher. Here's where we want to land this thing. The grace message proclaims to us the beautiful reality that Jesus is saying to you and me, to, to every sinner, Christian or non-Christian, He's saying to us, Come to me, all you who are weary and carry heavy burdens and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you, for I am humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. We can rejoice and be glad if we are believers in Christ, if we are followers of Jesus, it is finished. We are free. The work has been done by Jesus for us. We are no longer having to depend on what we do, on the strength of our love for Him and our commitment to Him. We can rest everything. We can put our full weight on Him and His love and His commitment to us. That is the 
grace way. Bow your heads, please. Close your eyes.